All right, John chapter 16. Before we jump into the message today, I want to talk for a few minutes about our mask policy. Woohoo! Everyone's favorite topic these days, right? I want to talk about why we're doing masks, and I'm just going to reiterate, just because we still do get questions about it, uh, I understand it's a contentious issue, I understand that there's a lot of opinions on it, I understand it's very confusing. Who has felt confused during the season of COVID? I understand your confusion, I am also confused, and I am also frustrated by things, and I also don't like these things on my face. I get it, and I understand that part of the frustration is there's different things coming from different sources, and sometimes something is said here, and then they change it over there, or it was this one day, and now it's another day, and uh, you know, this week we're all trying to figure out, is Thanksgiving a thing or not? Who knows? And it's just every day it's a little bit different, and I get the frustration, and I get the confusion, and if you want confusion, you should see what we're having having to sort through that the government has given churches to deal with as we are trying to reopen safely. And so it's, here's this document, and this refers you to that document, and that refers you to that document, but that document contradicts something in the first document. And so pastors are calling each other, and it's like we're trying to interpret an original Greek manuscript of the book of Romans. And we're going, how are you interpreting this huge mess of words? What are you guys coming to? So none of this has been easy. And I get that we're tired, and I get that we're weary. We as a leadership at Meadowbrook Church have determined that we're going to wear masks, obviously, during our service. And I know some people don't like that. I know some people are specifically staying home for that reason alone. And we still do get questions. So I just wanted to reiterate why we're doing what we're doing. And it has nothing to do with fear. And some have asked, isn't it just fearful to wear a mask? Isn't that, shouldn't we have more faith than that? Shouldn't we uh, demonstrate that we're not afraid of this virus? And it has nothing to do with fear. I am perfectly at peace with my mask. I don't like it. But I am exactly as fearful putting on my mask as I am putting on my seatbelt. It's the exact same level, exact same thing. And when it comes to our seatbelt, we're not saying, well, in the name of faith, you shouldn't wear a seatbelt and you shouldn't strap your kids in and you shouldn't put your kids in a car seat. We don't take faith to that conversation. And so it's not a lack of faith to take precautions to your health. It's just not. It's not a lack of faith to do that. We all do that in lots of different ways. It's why we take our medication. It's why we get that surgery. It's why when we get the cancer diagnosis, we get the chemo. Like we all do that all the time and we don't think that it's a lack of faith. So it's not a lack of faith to do some common sense precautions to keep your health in check. It's not a bad thing to do that. We all do it all the time. And so there are a few different reasons we're doing it. And one of them is, is that at the moment, and it might not be this way forever, but at the moment, our public health authorities believe that masks are important to stopping the spread of COVID. Um, I'm not going to fight with you over whether they're right or wrong or the science of it, because I'm not a scientist and neither are most of us. I'm not a medical professional, neither are you. At the moment, our healthcare professionals are telling us very broadly and across the board that they help stop the spread. And I know you can find doctors on YouTube that say that's not true or whatever, but we're looking at what do our authorities say? What do the health professionals in our church who we know say? I've went and spoken to my family doctor who in every way that I can steward my health, I literally trust with with my life. She says, we think they help. We don't know how much, but this is part of how we all do our part. And so we have felt as a church that we want to contribute to that, that we don't want to be part of the problem. We want to contribute to the solution. I heard a, a newscaster say this week, not a Christian one, but they said, you know, the problem with pandemics is they force us to stop saying I and start saying we, and we're not very good at that. 
And I thought, I could preach on that. That's a pretty great phrase. That it forces us to look at what do we do collectively to help stay on top of this thing. Martin Luther in the Middle Ages wrote a plague on how Christians should respond in a time of pandemic. And he said, well, if a house was on fire, you wouldn't just say like, well, I have faith. God can send rain. Uh, and if he doesn't, then that's just going to be his will, I guess. It's no, if the house is on fire, you grab a bucket and you contribute to the solution. And he said, a plague is like a fire spreading through a town. And we all have a duty together to help put that fire out, and especially the Christ follower. We should be the first ones there to sacrifice for the sake of putting that fire out. So the first reason that we're doing it is because our health authorities have said that it's important. And so we're going to listen to the medical professionals on medical matters, because most of us are not medical professionals. If it turns out that masks don't do a lot, the science will prove that, and things will change. And so some of you are coming to us saying, it's been proven that they don't work, and it has not yet been proven that they don't work. If it, they, if it's proven they don't work, we won't use them anymore. But we're not there yet. And so at the moment when the consensus is they help, we want to be part of the solution in that. The other part of that is we have a number of people in our church who are high risk, who are especially vulnerable to the virus, uh, either because of age or different health issues going on. And so we want them to feel safe to come back. And it felt weird to us when we were trying to figure out what to do in this area. It would be weird to us to say, uh, we don't feel like wearing masks, so vulnerable people should just stay home and not participate in worship with us. That didn't sit right with us because scripture continually calls us to put others before ourselves and it continu continually calls us uh, especially to the vulnerable, right? To those who are the most needy, to those who need the most help. As Christians, we want to go there first and be there first. So one of the members of our leadership team had said, you know what, I don't like masks and I'm not convinced that they do a whole lot. Uh, they're really not my favorite thing. I don't like them. But if me wearing a mask makes you feel safer and makes you feel more secure so that you can come and join in with worship, I'll wear a mask for you just for that reason. Like for that reason alone, I'll wear a mask for you. And so that's what love calls us to do. It's hard to argue with the, the Christ-likeness, the other-centeredness of that attitude. So we're wearing masks because that's what the doctors say we should be doing. We're wearing masks because we want to be able to put others first. We're also wearing masks because we're singing. And the government really doesn't want us singing right now. They really don't want us singing. They've made very clear, we're not ordering you to stop singing, but as close as we can get to ordering you to stop singing, we really don't want you singing. And the reason they don't want us singing is not because they're trying to stamp out our song. This is the same for music lessons and anything else, is that when you sing, you ruin the two-meter bubble. Like, because you sing louder, you spray further, and so they view it as a higher risk of transmission. And that's not just for churches, that's for anything musical, any singing that's happening anywhere. And so churches, a lot of churches have just stopped singing. They've just canceled that part of worship. They've just said, we're going to just sit quietly and have some reflection quietly to music. And we felt like, ah, oh, you know, when we read our Bible, it tells us to sing a lot. It says, come into the house of the Lord and sing and make a joyful noise to the Lord. And that's part of what we do. And it's an important part of what we gather, why we gather. And so to give up singing to the Lord, uh, I think would take a lot. And so if we're not going to give that up, masks just help, again, just help mitigate the risk. We can't remove it, but it just helps. We just really didn't want to have to give up worship. And then the last reason that we're doing it, and this really was like, for some of us, I think the main reason that we're wearing masks is my big concern as a pastor when we were reopening is, okay, so we're all going to be in a room together. We are going to be singing together. We are going to be, you know, in a closed-in space. 
So this isn't even like when you go to, you know, the store and you're passing people. Like, we're going to be sitting near people. We're all breathing in the same air. Uh, you know, what do we do here to keep everybody safe? And what happens if, you know, later on today, John starts to feel a little fluish, and then tomorrow he goes and gets tested, and it turns out he has COVID. Uh, he's going to be fine. Like, we're not worried about him. But just what happens to the rest of us? Because part of this season isn't just about the virus. It's just about the effect of the age that we're living in. And so if one person's sick and we've all been in close contact with him in the room and singing and everything, uh, what happens to the rest of us? What happens to the church? Do we have to shut the church down for two weeks? Do we have to quarantine everybody for two weeks? And the health unit said, well, yes, like absolutely we will have to do that. Uh, it will depend, though, on how many of the health protocols you put in place. And so I said, okay, so we're going to be distancing and everyone's going to sanitize and we have crazy cleaning procedures happening right now and we're doing stuff to keep our kids safe and everything. So if we do all of these things, what will happen? Will we still have to shut down potentially? Will we have to quarantine everyone in the room? And they said, maybe, like we would have to see specifically what you did. I said, what if we wore masks for the service? And they said, if you wore masks, we'd have no more questions, you'd be fine. We wouldn't have to do any of it. And we went, oh, it's such a shame that the thing that will help us move forward is a thing that so many people hate. But we thought, man, we don't really want to have to do that. We don't want to say, sorry, Dan, you're not going to work for two weeks. And, and sorry, everyone, small business owners, you're going to not run your business for two weeks. You're going to have to pull people out of school. So it's not even necessarily about the virus, but about the disruption that's being caused in this season. And we thought, man, if we can wear a mask and that means we get to carry on with our lives, that's worth it for that reason alone. Like for that reason alone, it will help us moving forward. And it's ironic because I know part of the struggle for masks for some people is a freedom issue. But in this case, wearing a mask is actually giving us more freedom <laughs> to live our lives and to not have to quarantine anytime someone got sick. And we have seen COVID happening in churches in our area, and it's happening in schools here and there, isolated cases. So it's not like crazy that someone might not be feeling well on a Sunday morning or maybe asymptomatic and, and don't really understand it. But we thought, man, love in a mask can also just mean let's wear a mask for each other so that we don't all have to get disrupted if someone turns out to not be feeling well today. I'll say with masks as well, uh, and this is the same as what the health unit has said, is that there are people in our church who legitimately have health issues, breathing issues, psychological issues, or whatever. And so the health unit has says, you don't have to wear a mask in those moments. And we're not like looking for a doctor's note or anything. We're trusting the honor system, the Jesus system, that Christians shouldn't lie. But if you have a legitimate reason where you can't, or it's triggering a panic attack or whatever, then you don't have to wear a mask. You've never had to. That's always been our policy. Uh, again, we're trusting you in that. So if you see someone who's not wearing a mask, they have a reason. They have a good medical or other reason. And so we don't want anyone looking at anyone weird or thinking that that person's just being rebellious. They have a good reason to do it. And so that's why we're doing what we're doing. It's not in any way motivated by fear. It's motivated by we need to have a healthy respect for this virus. I don't think we should be afraid of it, but we should certainly have a healthy respect for it. We certainly can do our part to throw some water on the flames and help keep it under control. And we want to make sure that we can keep worshiping the way we want to worship. We want to make sure that everybody who's vulnerable feels safe to come here to worship. And we want to make sure that if someone did get sick, it wouldn't disrupt the life of everybody in the room. So that's why we're doing what we're doing. And I know part of the struggle of this is, well, is the government going too far? Is this government overreaching? Are they trying to control us? Are they trying to oppress us? And, and for the record, personally, I don't think that's the case. And I know people disagree. That's all right. I think everything the government's doing at the moment is sincere. I just think they're sincerely trying to stop this thing and sincerely trying to save lives. Evidence might emerge that 
takes me in a different direction, but at the moment, that's how I feel about this. But I get the struggle, and I have no doubt we will look back and say, ah, there was probably certain things we didn't need to do, and maybe there were things that were too much, but, you know, it's a brand new virus, and everyone's just learning as they go. There's no handbook for this stuff. But I... And trying to wrestle through it biblically, uh, here is something that helped me. Because it's not like I haven't had the thought of maybe they are going too far or maybe this is something else. Um, but when Jesus is teaching at the Sermon on the Mount and he's saying this is what it means to be kingdom-minded, this is what it means to be a follower of Jesus, this is what it means to love people well, this is what I'm looking for from my followers. Uh, as he is teaching on how do we love one another and all of those things, one of the things he says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 41, he says, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. So that's where we get the term, go the extra mile, right? And we usually use that to mean go above and beyond. Don't just do the bare minimum, go above and beyond. But that's actually not even, that's a good principle, but that's not what this is about. Because there's a very specific context that Jesus is talking about. So when Jesus is walking the earth, Rome is ruling the civilized world, including Israel. Israel is oppressed, Rome is in charge, Rome did not like the Jewish people. And so when Rome is in charge, there is a law in place that says any Roman soldier can grab any Jewish citizen and make them carry their load for a mile. And so if a Roman soldier is tired of carrying his armor and his weapons and everything, then they can just grab any Jewish person that they see and make that person carry the load for them. Now, it's limited to one mile so that it couldn't become, like, over the top. But whatever you were doing, you could be going about your business, and if you ran into a Roman soldier and they wanted you to carry the load for a mile, you didn't have a choice. You would have to do it. And so that's actual government oppression, right? That's actually an unjust government dominating over a people and making them do something they don't want to do. So that's actually happening in this case. Again, I don't personally think masks are that, but I understand that that's the struggle. So when the government does that, when the government is forcing us to do things that we really don't want to do, what is the Jesus response? Jesus' response is don't just go one mile, go two. And so one of them you have to do. You don't have a choice. And when the government was forcing you to do something you didn't want to do, Jesus doesn't say, well, turn them down or refuse or get angry or get rebellious. Jesus says, no, you go the mile that they've asked you to do and then actually add a mile on top of that. Woohoo! Hallelujah! Amazing! Exciting! But the reason for that is that it turns the situation around and it changes you as you do it. Because the first mile is law. But the second mile is love, right? The first mile is forced. The second mile is a choice. The first mile is oppression. The second mile is you doing it for the glory of God in obedience to Jesus. You're doing it in a redemptive way. It's not about you doing it because you're ordered to. You're doing it because you're choosing to because love chooses to serve others. And so the first one, I don't have any choice. I got to do it. But the second mile, I am choosing to love and serve that person. And the hope would be that that soldier is going to go, who is this crazy person doing an extra mile? And maybe they're going to be changed through the process. But my attitude is going to change for sure. Because the first one, I'm doing it because I am being put upon. The second one, I am doing because my Savior has asked me to love people in a sacrificial way. And when I love people in a sacrificial way, everything gets a lot easier. So even if I feel that masks and restrictions and smaller social gatherings and everything is an oppression that's being put on me, how I actually live that out is entirely going to depend on my attitude. Because if I choose to say, you know what, even if the government is overreaching, I'm not going to let that be the reason that I do these things. I'm going to do it out of love. 
I'm going to do it because I love my brothers and sisters in the church who are more vulnerable, and I am willing to put them first. I love the members of my church who go to work and need to make a living. I don't want them to have to stay home for two weeks, and so I will do it for them there. I'm going to do it because I love worship, and I love lifting up the name of the Lord, and that's important, and this is a way that's going to let me do that. So this isn't so much that it changes the circumstance. It changes me. It changes my heart. It changes my attitude. And it lets me reframe it in a way that says, you know what? The government can do whatever it wants. But in the second mile, I'm not a slave to them. Even though the circumstance isn't any different, I am walking in the love of the Lord. And I'm doing it in obedience to him. I'm putting him first, and I'm putting others first. And so that's a way to help us wrestle through this stuff. Um, I, I know it's not everybody's favorite thing. One of the things that we have decided uh, here at Meadowbrook, and we are looking at this stuff constantly, is that from here on out, the board's actually going to take all questions, comments, concerns about masks. The staff isn't going to take that anymore. Uh, it's been better a bit more recently, but especially through the summer, we were getting lots of phone calls, and a lot of it was angry. Not all of it was overly gracious or polite. And so the board has been awesome in this season, just saying, how can we help? What can we do for you? How can we take the load off you in this stressful time? And I said, how would you guys, okay, let me paint you a picture. How about you take all the mask problems whatsoever, you be responsible for it, you answer questions, and they said, great, give it to us. You guys focus on the Word of God and ministry. That's what you're supposed to be focused on. We'll take the mask stuff. So, woohoo, for me and the rest of the staff. From here on out, if you have any questions or concerns or comments about masks, you can take it to a board member. If you're not sure who the board is, we'd be very happy to take your name. We'll have a board member get in touch with you. I would like the staff to be free to focus on ministry and scripture and prayer as we should. And so the board has graciously agreed to step into that. All right. Amen? No more mass talk. Let's get to our sermon today. We are continuing on. We took a week off last week to hear from Derek. Wasn't it awesome to have Derek Parento here? Uh, so good. I could listen to Derek tell stories all day long about what God is doing in that ministry. It's so cool to see and hear. If you didn't uh, get a chance to see it, it is online on our YouTube channel. You can catch up there. But we were in a series called True Seekers, and we will be in the series for the next few weeks as well. And we are talking about what does it mean to be people of truth, especially in a time when there are a lot of different opinions about what truth is. And when this politician says this, and that politician says that, and this preacher says this, and that preacher says that, and when we're connected by the internet just to everything, and there's just a whole world of everything out there, everyone claiming to have the truth, everyone sure that everyone else is lying and deceived, how do we know? How do we find the truth in the middle of this? And not just that, but as followers of Jesus, how are we being truthful? And how are we speaking the truth? And how are we doing what we say? And how are we being faithful stewards of the truth? How are we avoiding gossip? and rumors and things that aren't true or things that are half true. How do we be people of truth as God has called us to be? It's not easy stuff. And so in week one, we gave a bit of an overview of the whole thing that, uh, that truth is something we actually have to seek out. It's not something that's just automatic. There's just too much out there. We should not automatically believe every single thing that we hear. I've told you, even my preaching, you should be checking yourself against the Word of God and making sure that it lines up there. We should never be listening automatically to what anybody says. We need to dig for truth. We need to search for truth. We need to make what Luke said was a careful investigation of truth. Week two, we talked about our, our self, our flesh, our sinful side, our selfish side, and how that can actually 
actually interfere. We can start to hear the truth that we want to hear. It might not actually be the truth, but we can just lock on to what our itching ears want to hear. And so how do we empty ourself? How do we lay ourself down so that we can have a clearer view of what truth is? And then the last sermon, which was two weeks ago, we talked about the word of truth, that God's word is his truth. It is his communicated truth to humanity. And so it is the clearest expression of what he wants. It's the clearest expression of what he says is right and what he says is true. So if we are going to be people of truth, we need to be able to know what his word says. We need to be saturated in the word of God. And somebody asked me uh, in this series, like, why are we, like, I understand searching for truth and God's truth and the word of truth and everything. Like, why are you also in this series talking about like COVID and headlines and Trump? Like, why are those things coming up? Why are we focusing on those things that are not biblical issues? And the reason why is because I, I have felt this way for a while. There's something about 2020 that's maybe brought it a little sharper to the service, but I am uh, concerned and I would say to the point of even alarmed as a pastor, and I know many other pastors feel the same way, by the fact that we all know biblically that there's a lot of deception out there. We know that any of us could be deceived if we're not careful, and so we need to be watchful and we need to be careful. But I've been alarmed at the idea that, man, if we can't even tell if a headline is true or not, like if we can't even sort through whether a news story is reliable or full of lies, if we can't see if there's manipulation in that politician or not, like if we can't even do that, it makes me very concerned about how we're going to handle this. Because if we're going to be people of truth, we need to be truth oriented all the time. We need to always be oriented towards truth. We shouldn't tolerate it if we feel that a news article is full of manipulation and lies, or if a politician or, or a preacher or whatever. Like, we, we need to be truth-oriented always, and not just when it comes to the Bible. And so it's been concerning that, uh, again, especially in 2020, just as there's been so much out there, and just how easily it is just to kind of swallow anything we're reading, and not actually weighing it and testing it, like Scripture tells us to, not actually making a careful investigation into the truth and just receiving it automatically as if, as if it is truth. And we need to do better than that. And so that's why we're doing this series. Uh, it's not just about 2020, although it's certainly given us a good context to wrestle through these things. Uh, I don't have to think hard of the exa examples that I'm going to use because they're just everywhere all around us, and we're wanting to wrestle through those things together. So let's take a look at our text today. We're in John chapter 16, and we're starting in verse 12. So Jesus is coming to the end of his earthly life. He's about to go to the cross. He's at the Last Supper. He's giving the final instructions to the apostles. He's giving his final teaching thoughts along the way. And one of the things he has to say is about the Holy Spirit. So John 16, starting in verse 12. Jesus says, I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will glorify me, because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said the Spirit will receive from me what he will make known to you. Jesus would have more to say about the Holy Spirit, but we'll just focus on those few verses today, and we'll engage with some other scriptures as well. So the Holy Spirit is coming. This is part of Jesus' final message to his apostles. Jesus says, I am about to leave you. I am going to the cross. I will rise from the dead. I will return to heaven. But you will not be left alone. 
The apostles were grieving because their Savior was about to leave. They had met God face to face in Jesus, and that was about to go. And Jesus says, good news, you're not going to be left alone. I'm not going to leave you as orphans. The Spirit's going to come, and he's going to continue everything I've been doing. He says, it's actually better for me to go. I know you guys are going to grieve me, but it's better for me to leave. Because when Jesus is there, God on the earth is confined to one man. And one man who would go around and one man who would preach the good news and perform miracles and do all of these things. Jesus says, it's actually going to be better when I leave. Because now, instead of it being limited to one person, the Holy Spirit will be poured out on all flesh. And the Holy Spirit will make his home in every believer. And now every believer will take God with them anywhere they go and we'll preach the good news and we'll pray for the sick and we'll see miracles happen because the Holy Spirit's going to come and he's going to go with you always. And so where even when Jesus was on the earth, he was still an outside source. Now the Holy Spirit was going to live inside and he was going to be here all the time. And one of the names of the Holy Spirit that Jesus uses in our passage today is the spirit of truth who will lead you into all truth. And the Holy Spirit, we say, is the third person of the Trinity. And we don't mean person in the sense of human, but in the terms of personality. He has a mind. He has a will. He has emotions. He is one with the Father. He is one with the Son. When Jesus is saying, he's going to tell you what I tell him to tell you, he's going to take my truth and make it known to you, Jesus is saying, you can trust the Holy Spirit when he comes. The Holy Spirit isn't coming with a new message. He's not coming with a different idea. The Holy Spirit is coming with what I have because Father, Son, and Spirit are all the same. And we would push back against any teaching or any theology that would suggest that the Holy Spirit is somehow less than the Father or less than the Son. And sometimes through passages like this, people come to that conclusion, maybe not even theologically, but certainly in practice. And we say, no, the Holy Spirit is not less than. When Jesus says he's not going to come on his own, he's going to bring my message to you, Jesus is just saying you can trust this message because it's me. It's me coming to you. You don't need to worry about what the Holy Spirit says. It's not a new messenger. And, and elsewhere in this discourse in John, Jesus has said, when I go, you're going to get a helper from heaven. And I've said before, we wouldn't be needing a helper if we didn't need some help. Right? If we could do this all on our own, we wouldn't need a helper, but, but we need the help. And so the Holy Spirit's going to come, he's going to make his home in every believer, and he's going to help us in this journey. One of the ways he's going to help us is he's going to lead us into all truth. And that's what's exciting, because when it can feel overwhelming of what is true and what is not true, when we're wrestling through a Bible passage we don't understand, or when we're in a year like 2020 when there's so much opinion out there, whatever we are struggling with, we don't always know what truth is, but he already knows what the truth is. The Holy Spirit isn't worried or anxious about anything. He's already got the truth locked down and figured out. Our job is to connect with him who has all the answers. I don't need to have all the answers. I need to connect with him who has all the answers as he leads me into all truth. And so the spirit of truth is going to come. What can we learn about the spirit of truth from the word of God? First of all, the spirit of truth always lines up with the word of truth. The Holy Spirit will always line up with Scripture. When the Holy Spirit comes to lead us, when he speaks to us, when he guides us, when he shows us the way that we should go, when he is showing us direction for a church or as individuals, the Holy Spirit will always line up with God's Word. And that's because, according to 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is God-breathed, literally God-spirited. 
It is inspired of the Spirit, and it is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. All Scripture was written through the apostles, through the prophets, by the Spirit of God. And so the Holy Spirit will never contradict that because he would be a hypocrite if he did. And we know that he does not lie. He does not change his mind. The Holy Spirit is the same yesterday, today, and forever, just as Christ is. And so the Holy Spirit has inspired the word, so the Holy Spirit can never speak anything that contradicts the word. And so sometimes someone will come and say, I think the Lord is saying this. And you can say, well, that contradicts this scripture, so that that can't be the Lord. That's the flesh talking, or maybe that's the enemy trying to deceive. But the Holy Spirit of truth will always line up with the word of truth because it's the same spirit that breathed the scripture is the same spirit who is here and leads us in the way that we should go. The spirit of truth will be confirmed with other believers. 1 Corinthians 12, 13. We were all baptized by one spirit into one body. That's one family. Whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. There's one Holy Spirit. There's not a male Holy Spirit that the men get and the females get a different one. There's not a junior Holy Spirit that the kids get. The kids get the same Holy Spirit that the rest of us get. There's one Spirit for all of us. So what that means is when I am trying to figure out what the Spirit is saying to me or where the Lord is leading to me, it becomes really, really important to talk to other believers that I know are also Spirit-filled and see if that sits well with them. It's never on me to discern Holy Spirit truth by myself. It's just not. And it's actually incredibly unwise, incredibly foolish to do that. Because if the Holy Spirit is speaking something to me, I should be able to check that with Dan, who has the exact same spirit living in him, and we should see if that sits well with Dan. And, and if he is also getting that same sense of that is what the Spirit is leading me into. And so this protects us, because if I were to go to the board and say, guys, I was in prayer this morning, the Holy Spirit totally told me that pastors should be making 500 grand a year. He told me, get mad at him, not me. Then the board can go, well, we've talked about that, and that doesn't sit right with us. We don't think that is the Holy Spirit. And if the same Holy Spirit were saying that everywhere, you could trust that that was actually God. But if I'm only getting a sense of that, especially in that case, that's probably just my flesh talking. That's probably just my selfishness talking. I am dressing it up to make it sound like the Lord, but that's probably just me. And so if the Holy Spirit is saying something to me, I have to be able to confirm that with other believers because we all have the same spirit living within us. And so that keeps us humble. Uh, it keeps us from elevating ourselves because we don't discern the Lord on our own. And it also keeps us dependent on one another. It, it should, like in a good way, like where family has to be dependent on one another, where we say it can be hard to pull out the voice of the Holy Spirit with all the other voices out there and all the voices in here and my own flesh and my own struggles and my own sin and everything that goes in there. It can be hard to tell where the Spirit is leading and where he is not, but I don't have to carry that burden by myself. It would be ridiculously foolish of me to try and carry that burden by myself. The Holy Spirit in me is exactly the same as the Holy Spirit in you, who, by the way, is the Spirit that raised Christ Jesus from the dead. The very same one. And he knows all the truth. And so we don't need to carry the burden ourselves of figuring all of this out. He's put us in a community for a reason. We see such a great example of this in Acts chapter 15. The Council of Jerusalem. The book of Acts is unfolding. People are getting saved like crazy. They're coming to Jesus. They're filled with the Spirit. There's demons being cast out. There's miracles happening. It's incredible. And it is primarily happening amongst the Jewish people. And that made sense to them because in their understanding of the Old Testament, God is the God of Israel. 
and Jesus came to Israel. And so the Jewish people are enjoying seeing the Jewish people come to Jesus along the way. And then what happens is non-Jewish people, Gentiles, start getting saved. And they start getting filled with the Holy Spirit. And they start speaking in other tongues, like the Jewish believers had been when the Holy Spirit came. And there's a question in the church, like, we just, this is blowing our minds. It's blowing our paradigms. We don't have a, an understanding of Jew and Gentile worshiping the God of Israel together. But through Jesus, Gentiles are starting to be introduced into the God of Israel. And we believe they're getting saved. But what do we do with them now? Like, do they have to be circumcised? Do they have to follow our Old Testament law? Like, what do we do with the Gentiles who are coming to Jesus. And so Acts 15, the church comes together. Apostles and prophets and leaders come together to wrestle with this question. What do we do with Gentiles who are coming to Jesus? What should they have to do? Do we need to circumcise them or not? Do we need to give them the law or not? And what they do at this council is they give a careful investigation into truth. They don't just say one person said it. Well, that's what we're going to do. They hear from this group who thinks they do need to be circumcised. They hear from Peter who has evidence of his experience with the Gentiles. Paul and Barnabas weigh in with their experience. They open the Bible and see what the word of God has to say. They debate and they pray and they discuss and they eventually come to a conclusion. And I wasn't there. I don't know exactly how it all came about. But there is a moment where they say collectively, we believe we have heard from the Holy Spirit. We believe the Holy Spirit has brought us in unity into truth. And so they say, Gentiles, it seems good to the Holy Spirit and to us that we not burden you with Old Testament law. You don't need to be circumcised. You don't need to follow all of the law. There's a few commandments that we're going to give you just to keep you pure, pure and to keep you from being polluted by the world. But we're not going to put any burden on you beyond that. And, th and that's their testimony. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. We believe we have heard together from the Spirit of truth after our careful investigation into the truth. God brought them into unity and brought them where he wanted them to go. And so community is important when we're trying to discern what the Lord is saying. We don't do that on our own. The spirit of truth is demonstrated by the fruit of the spirit. How do we know if something is of the Lord or not? Well, we check with the word, as we've already talked about. We check with other believers, as we've already talked about. But I can sometimes misunderstand the word. Even me and a few other believers could miss something. We might have, we talked already, a lot of believers thought slavery was a really good idea after reading the Bible. So it doesn't automatically mean that we have found the Holy Spirit's truth. But the spirit of truth is demonstrated by the fruit of the spirit. Galatians 5, 22 and 23 says, The fruit of the Holy Spirit is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. Who's got them all? Come on. And so these are not in this passage presented as, here's a laundry list of things for you to work harder at. That's not what this is. Because fruit doesn't work really hard to grow. Fruit just grows, right? The conditions are right. Fruit grows. It doesn't have to try. It just happens. These are the qualities that begin to show up in the believer in increasing measure as they are filled with the Holy Spirit. As you are filled with the Holy Spirit, these are the things that he will start to bring forward in your life. So we don't want to turn these things into a work of I'm going to work harder at being patient. There is a place for that for sure, but that's not what fruit is all about. When we are filled with the Spirit, over time, we will see these qualities arriving more and more and more and more. 
And so hopefully, as you've been walking with Jesus, you can look at that list and say, okay, nobody has all of them, and, and nobody has them all in every day for sure, and so I still can be impatient, but uh, man, I look at my life and I go, there's more patience there than there was before, for sure. There's more joy there than there was before. Again, over time, no one has it all. It's all in degrees and levels. But we should, over time, be seeing these things come more and more in our lives if we are filled with the Holy Spirit. And so that's one of the ways we check what truth is, right? Because if the people who were pro-slavery all those years ago, even though they wrestled with the Scripture, cherry-picked a couple of verses to back them up, uh, and even though they had the community on board with them because they all believed the same thing, they should have been able to go like, okay, is slavery an act of love? Is it an act of joy? Does it bring peace? Is it kind? Is it gentle? Like, if something doesn't line up with the fruit of the Spirit, we should question whether that's Holy Spirit or not. We should question whether that person is in step with the Holy Spirit. So we're in an age right now where there's a lot of conspiracy theories, right, out there, and there's a lot of stuff that gets passed around. Um, I'm not a big believer in conspiracy theories, and so here is why. So first of all, I find that most of them fall apart when you give them a little shake. Like, most of them don't stand up too much. And so there's lots out there. Bill Gates is trying to control the world, and, and COVID is all a mass to get Trump to lose the election, and there's, you know, stuff in the 5G cell phone towers that's going to beam stuff into our brains. Like, there's quite a range out there of all of these different things. Big Pharma has cured cancer, but they're sitting on the cure because of all the money they're making from chemo, all, on and on and on and on. And so it's not that I don't believe that those things could happen. Like, here's the tricky part with conspiracy theories, is they all sound like they could be true, right? Like, there's always an element of like, huh, yeah, I mean, sure, Big Pharma could be that evil, or sure, Bill Gates could be that corrupt. Like, there's always an element of like, that might be true. Um, but the thing is, if you shake it a little bit, even just logically, it often falls apart. So Big Pharma has, this has been around for a while, they've cured cancer, they're sitting on the cure because of all the money they're making from chemo. And it's not that I don't think they couldn't be that corrupt or that greedy or that evil, but I also then go, if they've legitimately cured cancer, they could charge whatever they want for that cure, right? They could charge 10 times more than what they're making on the chemo. And so, you know, if one of my family were sick, I would mortgage my house 11 times to, to get the money, and no matter how expensive it was. So that just, you know, that falls apart for me. That doesn't make a lot of sense to me. The moon landing is faked, right? That's been around forever. It's faked. They needed to beat the Russians, and so the Americans just filmed it on a soundstage. And, and again, that, it could be true. Like, there's enough of it that could be true. But then I also go, it's not that I don't think they were, would be capable of it, but I just can't believe that with the number of people that would have been required to pull that off, that someone hasn't cracked in all this time, or someone didn't come along and say, we'll give you $10 million for a book deal, or something that would make this come out, right? Watergate fell apart in two weeks because they couldn't keep their story straight. And so I just have a hard time believing that that level of cover-up happened, that nobody cracked decades later. So I just, I don't think that that is true. Um, the other part about conspiracy theories and, and the ones who share them is that you don't see a lot of this in the people who are talking. You don't see a lot of peace in that person. You don't see a lot of joy. 
in that person. Like you don't see a lot. Like I was talking to someone who is a believer, not in our church, and they had just said, you know, the COVID virus, that's where they're injecting us with the microchip. Like that's like mark of the beast stuff. And they're going to be able to track you everywhere. And they're going to know where you are at all times. And they're going to know who you talk to. And they're going to know who your friends are. And you know, when we're going to restaurants right now, when you sign in at a restaurant, that's all the government trying to keep an eye on you and know where you are at all times. And I said to him, yeah, you know the phone that you're looking up these theories on? <laughs> It already knows exactly where you are at all times, and it already knows who your friends are, and then the government does have the ability to subpoena that if they want to and if they feel like they have a cause to. So, you know, we don't freak out about our phones because we like our phones. And it's just easier to focus on the government doing something crazy. I go, man, injecting everyone with a microchip, that's just a lot of work. Your phone's in your pocket all the time. Like, if they want to control us and track us, that's way easier because we're spending $1,000 to get the thing that might track us. And to be clear, I'm not saying I think that's what they're doing. But again, I do think these things fall apart when you shake them a little bit. And it's just interesting to me the things we choose to care about and the things we choose to not care about. And so when I'm talking to this gentleman who has all of these very legitimate concerns, like I, this is not a crazy person. This is not someone who is unstable in any way. Like they, he is very much concerned that that is what is happening. But I'm looking at this list of the spirit of truth and saying, I don't see a lot of peace in this gentleman. I don't see a lot of joy in this gentleman. I don't see a lot of love in this gentleman. There's not a lot of patience going on. So why would I think that that is the Lord? Why would I think that that is God's truth? Why, why would I think that? And so if the voices we are listening to are, are out of step with these qualities, and if the convictions that they're bringing me to is taking me out of these qualities, then I must rightly question whether that's the Holy Spirit or not. Because if I'm in step with the spirit of truth, my life will show the fruit of the spirit. And so one thing I learned long ago is that when I've lost peace in my life, I have missed the Lord somehow. I am out of step with the spirit, right? And so if I'm freaking out about a situation or I'm worried about a decision, whatever, if I am losing peace in my life, I have not connected and commuted with the spirit in the right way yet. I missed him somewhere. And as I seek him, I will find my way back to peace again. And that doesn't mean, I mean, sometimes the truth of the spirit comes and sometimes the truth hurts, right? Sometimes truth is convicting and sometimes truth can bring a feeling of, oh, and sometimes it can be heavy. But I have found when it's the Holy Spirit doing that, even in that moment, there is still love. There is still, there is still peace. There is still a, a feeling of, hey, he's convicting me of sin because he wants me to do better. Like, it's a good thing that he's doing this. So even though the truth can be hard, even though the truth can hurt, uh, we can't just throw out fruit of the Spirit in that name. And especially if we're sharing a hard truth with someone, it also means we need to pay even better attention to, to make sure that we are sharing with patience and kindness and gentleness. And again, something about 2020 has brought a lot of this to the surface as a staff, we would laugh about how many times, especially those first four months when we were locked down and so much stuff was closed down, just how often as staff uh, we'd be saying, oh, I'm just over this. I'm over stupid COVID. I'm over lockdown. I'm done with it. I'm over. I'm done. Remember this, Sarah? Just, I'm done with it. And some of you were saying that to us, just enough. I'm, I'm over. I'm done. 
And I mean, of course, the answer is, we don't get to just decide to be done with this. <laughs> like, we don't. That's not an option we have right now. There are very many things in my life where I can decide to be done, right? I can, I could leave my marriage. I could leave my kids. I could leave my job. I could leave the country. Like, there's, there's a lot of things that I can choose to be done on. This season is not one of them. We don't get to choose to be done. And one thing God is pruning in all of us for sure is in the area of patience and I have found in my life separate from 2020 anytime God wants to develop patience in my life he puts me in a situation where I have to be patient and I don't have a choice and then that muscle gets stretched and growth happens and I hate every possible minute of it because I want to be done quicker and it's just oh I was in my house the other day like a lot of houses, we have dead spots with our Wi-Fi, like spots where it works better than others. And I found myself just getting irrationally angry with an iPad because the website was taking a really long time to load. And when I look back on it, I'm betting it was 10 to 15 seconds. But it wasn't 0.2 seconds. And that's what my impatience wants. It wants everything fast now. And now God has placed all of us in a season. Whether you care about the virus or not, whether you're concerned about it or not, we've all been placed in the season where we just don't have a lot of control. We don't have a lot of options other than to wait it out. That's, that's where we're at. And the question doesn't become, are you going to wait it out or not? The question becomes, how are you going to? And in what attitude are you going to do it? So I said earlier, I don't think... What's happening to us right now is government oppression. I, I do believe it is sincere. My mind can be changed if, if evidence changes, but on the evidence now, I think the government is doing what Romans 13 says they should do. It says that the people that God has put in place are there for our good. And it doesn't mean everything they do is good, and it doesn't mean that they also can't be corrupt and evil, but we should always at least start at the place that God's word says that they're there for our good until they prove themselves otherwise. And if they prove themselves otherwise, our, our opinion can change, but we'll start with the word of God. The one that God has put in place over us has been put there for our good. At the moment, I think that's what they're doing when it comes to the virus. Again, my opinion might change, but that's where I'm at. So I don't think restrictions have been oppression. I don't think it's been persecution. I know a lot of People were crying persecution at the beginning when churches were shut down. But the thing is, churches weren't the only ones shut down. Everybody was shut down. Everybody was. Any place people gathered was shut down. And the reason for that was because the virus spreads people to people. And so churches were shut down, but so were schools, and so were sports franchises, and so were theaters, and so were shopping malls. And still people were screaming persecution. And I was going, I, I don't see it. Why? Why is this? Everybody, like we're not being singled out. We're not being told to stop talking about Jesus. We're just finding new ways to do it. And so in the book of Acts, persecution breaks out against the church. Stephen gets martyred. They try to kill more apostles. The apostles run for their lives, and they're not standing there saying, like, well, what about my rights? They just go, okay, we got to run for our life. I guess we're finding a new way to do church. And they invented it by the grace of the Holy Spirit as they went. And that's what we had to do. That's what all churches had to do. We didn't know that we were going to be online this year. We actually had a plan to do that next year, but we didn't know that that's the way it was going to go. And especially at the beginning, our reach was so much further than our normal Sunday morning reach. It's like, hey, I'm a YouTube sensation, apparently. Thanks, COVID. And we just found new ways to do it. And we kept preaching Jesus. And the gospel was spreading. And God was doing cool things. Like, it wasn't, it didn't do anything to stop 
what we were doing at Meadowbrook Church. We just couldn't gather in a room. That was the only thing that we lost. Everything else about church, we got to keep doing. So it wasn't persecution. And then we got to open before absolutely anybody else. Like we got to open before malls and before schools and before concerts and, and sports franchises are still shut down. We've been open for months at this point. And so my worry is that, you know, we might actually just cheapen that word persecution if we just throw it around. Because there's persecution right now that's real when there's a consequence to you following Jesus or you're being ordered not to follow Jesus or not to talk about Jesus and the consequences are jail or, or afflictions or, or death. Like that's what persecution is. By definition, that's what persecution is. So being told temporarily no one in the culture in any scenarios allowed to gather in one room, that's not persecution. It's just not. And we had to figure out a way, a way to do church that was new, and we did. But let's say, for the sake of argument, that it was persecution. I want to be clear that I'm not saying that, but let's say it was. Let's say this is government oppression. Let's say it is government overreach. What happened to the apostles in the book of Acts when that happened? I already told you one story. They ran for their lives. They found new ways to do church. Here's another story, Acts 5, verse 40 and 41. The Sanhedrin, the Jewish authorities, called the apostles in and had them flogged, whipped, then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus. So this is persecution, right? You're being punished for your faith, and you're being ordered not to speak your faith. But then they let them go. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they'd been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Joy is one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit. And even in persecution, joy is available. And so they're not getting mad and bitter and angry because bitterness and frustration are not fruits of the Holy Spirit. Cynicism and paranoia are not fruits of the Holy Spirit. It doesn't mean that everything we go through is amazing and we just put on a warm, happy smile. It's that in the middle of persecution, there's joy available, not because we're working hard to make it happen, because the Spirit in us is the Spirit of joy. And He is the Spirit of peace. And he is the spirit of love and gentleness and kindness, etc. And he lives here all the time. A friend of mine was preaching last week, Matt Tapley. He preaches up at Lake Mount Worship Center in Grimsby, Ontario, in the Niagara region. And he was preaching a somewhat similar message. But he said, you know, the New Testament does not give a lot of room for whiny Christians complaining about their rights. Get mad at Matt, not me. I didn't say it. I agree a thousand percent. And the Apostle Paul loved his right. Like the Apostle Paul would use his legal rights as a Roman citizen. He would say, hey, I have the right to appeal to Caesar and I can go preach the gospel in Rome. I have the right to not be thrown in jail without a trial or beaten without a trial. Like he was certainly happy with his legal rights. But when those legal rights were taken away, he didn't go like, well, I guess church is over now. Or I guess the, the government's going to crush what we're doing. It was, okay, well, we're going to find new ways to do church. We're going to find new ways to be the church. We're going to find new ways, and we're going to rejoice as we do it because the spirit inside us is the spirit of joy. So even in the face of persecution, what does a Holy Spirit-filled response to it look like? It looks like this. It's not snarky Facebook posts and getting angrier and angrier and angrier because anger is not a fruit of the Holy Spirit. It's not on the list. And that's not to say that a spirit-filled person can't get angry. Uh, and God gets angry sometimes, so obviously anger is not a sin. But Scripture says, in your anger, do not sin. Anger easily leads to a lot of sin. And Scripture also says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. So I'm allowed to be angry. If I'm feeling angry right now, my, that anger has a shelf life of about 10 more hours. And then it has to go away. 
I either need to deal with the person who's making me angry or I need to let it go and choose to move on with my life. Anger is not a sin. Holding on to anger absolutely is. And letting anger spur you on to sin is not good either. And so anger is not one of the fruits of the Spirit. We shouldn't be dwelling there. That's not a godly quality that we should be hoping. Over time, I'm getting angrier and angrier and angrier over time. I want to be getting more and more loving, joyful, peaceful, patient, etc. So the voices that we're listening to right now, are they lining up with the fruit of the Spirit? If I'm listening to paranoid voices, I'm going to get more paranoid. If I'm listening to bitter voices, I'm going to get more bitter. These are not fruits of the Holy Spirit. I have teachers that I have admired that I've actually pulled away from in my life. And I believe that they sincerely uh, do have understanding to the Word of God and, and might be good teachers. But as I would listen to them over time, I'd go like, I don't see a lot of this fruit there. This person doesn't seem to have a lot of peace. They don't seem to have a lot of joy. They don't seem very loving. They're, they're certainly not kind or gentle. And again, not just one sermon and not just a snap judgment because nobody has all of these things, but there are preachers I backed away from because I go over time, I don't see this evidence there. So there's something missing then. If they teach the word well, but they're disconnected from the fruit of the spirit, again, we rightly need to question, are they in step with the Holy Spirit? And if they are, why is this fruit not showing up there? And that's not a black and white thing. I'm not saying you listen to a sermon and say, well, that guy uh, sounds a little unkind, so I'm throwing him out. These things aren't black and white. They take time to sort through. But we're looking for if truth is out there and the Holy Spirit is the bringer of truth, then these qualities should be showing up wherever his truth is. And even when the truth is hard and heavy, these things are still there in the background. And so we are called to be very, very careful. The convictions that I'm holding on to? Are they taking me deeper in the fruit of the Spirit, or are they taking me deeper into the opposite things? And if the things that I am believing, even about the Lord, if they're taking me into the opposite things, again, I need to question. I need to ask the question, is that the Holy Spirit or not? Because these are the things that show up when we're filled with the Holy Spirit, and that is the command of Scripture. Ephesians 5.18, be filled with the Holy Spirit. You have the Holy Spirit if you're a follower of Jesus. He lives in you. Because Scripture says you can't acknowledge Jesus as Lord except by the Holy Spirit. You can't understand the Bible. You can't understand the things of God. These things are discerned of the Spirit. So every believer has the Holy Spirit. I don't believe every believer is continually being filled with the Holy Spirit. Because that's what this passage means. It's not just you got filled once and now you're done. A better translation of the Greek would be be filled over and over and over and over and over again with the Holy Spirit. Seek the filling of the Holy Spirit. And so I can't make him do things, but I can seek him. That can be my part. And the Holy Spirit filling can be hard to define. And yet at the same time, I go, you know, you know it when you've had it, right? You know when you've had an encounter with God. You know it. It feels different. You, you know when a Bible time has been a spirit-filled Bible time. You know when a worship service has filled you with the spirit in a new way. Like you just, you know You've experienced it. It feels different. And so the call on us is to be filled continually with the Holy Spirit. And so that happens in different ways. For some of us, it's just prayer. For some of us, it happens in worship. For some of us, it happens by being outside in creation. For some of us, it happens really well in discussion with other people. For some of us, it happens on our own while we're out for a walk. But where are you seeking the Lord in your life? At the very least, are we praying the prayer every single day? Father, fill me with your Spirit today. And show me where and how I can go. Where are the gas stations in your life where you can go and get filled up? And hopefully Sunday is one of them for you. But if it was automatic, we wouldn't be commanded to go do it. 
right? If it just happened automatically and we didn't have to do anything, we wouldn't have to be commanded. It would just be automatic. And so the fact that we're told to do it means we actually need to go out and seek it. Come on up, worship team. We're just about done here. So here's a few questions for you to mull over this week. And uh, if you missed the questions, then it'll be on the YouTube video, so you can go and, and fast forward. It'll be on the screen there as well. So where am I being filled with the Holy Spirit? Where is that happening? Where am I going and actively seeking Him filling me up? Um, are the voices that I'm listening to demonstrating the fruit of the Spirit? And, and how can I tell that? How am I measuring that and wrestling through that? Are the Word of God and the Spirit of God both at work in my life, and how do I know? And if the answer to that is no, what needs to change? What's our next step? Even starting tomorrow, what do I need to do a little bit differently? Last question, can I confidently say I'm walking in step with the Holy Spirit? That's a very hard question. Uh, I don't know always how I can answer that question, but it's still the right question. Can I confidently say I'm walking in step with the Holy Spirit? How do I know that? And one of the answers needs to be, do I see the fruit of the Spirit growing in my life? And when I'm measuring out, is this true or not? I'm checking it with the word. I'm checking it with other believers. But I'm also checking, hey, is, am I seeing evidence that that truth is actually truth as evidenced by the fruit of the spirit of truth that is showing up in there? The Bible tells us in Galatians 5.25, since we live by the spirit, let us keep in step with the spirit. And again, if that was an automatic thing, but the word of God wouldn't command us to do it. Like it's something we actually have to, to make an effort towards. Since we have the Holy Spirit, since we are living out this faith life only by him, then let's make sure that we are keeping in step with him. We are seeking him. We are praying for him to fill us. And one of the ways we know just experientially that we're filled with the spirit happens through our worship. And so I'm gonna ask you to stand with me as we get ready to close. And that's our prayer right now. As we worship Jesus, as we fix our eyes on him, we all need to be filled. And so may he fill us even in these next few minutes as we get ready to close today.